Hello, everyone, and welcome to this ODI public dialogue on reimagining gender, peace, and security, unveiling the untold story of women's mental health in Afghanistan. I'm Aisha Khan, a senior research fellow at the Gender Equality and Social Inclusion Program. There are many ways in which security does not bring peace, particularly for the most marginalized and vulnerable communities. In Afghanistan, the work we're highlighting today forces us to consider the severe mental health impact of the protracted conflict, together with the impact of the restrictions imposed on women by the Taliban. This has received little attention either in academia or in policy. But hopefully today's event will give us all an opportunity to share perspectives and experiences and take forward these ideas in our research and practice. I'm delighted to present our panelists. In the room, we have Mariam Safi, Executive Director of the Organization for Policy, Research and Development Studies, known as DROPS by its acronym, and Althea Maria Rivas, Senior Lecturer at SOAS. She has a focus on exploring the politics of development, conflict, humanitarian interventions, and peace. Ma um, Mariam and Althea will be presenting highlights and the recent findings of an extensive survey, survey they have conducted through DROPS. And online, I would like to introduce our guests, Madeline Rees, British lawyer and the current Secretary General of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And last but not least, Dorothy Estrada Tank, Chair for the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. Some quick housekeeping um, before the events get going. First of all, um, this discussion will be structured in three segments. During the first segment, we will hear from our panelists, from our presenters, sorry, on the findings of the DROP survey. The second part will be a discussion with the speakers based on their perspectives and experiences. And the third part, during that, we will invite the audience and the online participants to contribute to the conversation. We would like to encourage a robust exchange of ideas between our audience and our invited speakers. So please do think throughout the discussion about the comments or the feedback you might have and what you would like to ask our guests. And we will come to your questions later in the session. We would like to invite our online audience to share their reflections in the chat box um, uh, beneath the live stream. So now to introduce our speakers. Mariam Safi is an esteemed international relations advisor and Afghanistan expert. She has a background in state building, security, and conflict management. Um, she is currently the executive director for DROPS and has supported the creation of Bishnal, their which is the name of their digital survey, which is tool gathering for data in Afghanistan. Althea Maria Rivas is a, is a dedicated senior lecturer in development studies at SOAS. Her research primarily focuses on Afghanistan, Liberia, and Somalia, in addition to parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. She explores the intersectionality of racial and gender dynamics within aid, post-conflict reconstruction, and transitional justice. Before her academic career, Althea worked for over 12 years in the areas of diplomacy, post-conflict reconstruction, humanitarian assistance, gender development, and governance. Over to you, Mariam and Althea. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Arsha Khan. Um, if we could just put up the, the slides. Thank you. 
Um, before I start, I'd just like to first take this opportunity uh, to, to thank um, ODI for supporting and holding today's event, uh, SOAS, ICOP, uh, and the Raoul Wallenberg uh, Institute for supporting uh, this particular policy brief and study. Um, and uh, in particular, I'd also like to take this opportunity to, to, to thank, thank uh, Dr. Catherine Nuwajiaku Dahu, um, the Director of the Politics and Governance Department at ODI, and Dr. Althea uh, Rivas for her continued and unconditional support, both of their support in the last uh, six months and in, in, in facilitating uh, this policy brief and today's event. And least but uh, um, and last but certainly not least, I'd like to also thank uh, Megan Roderick from the uh, Pogo Department here uh, for helping us put together today's event. Um, so what I'd like to do is uh, both myself and Althea will, would like to share some of the key findings of our Bishnau March survey, uh, which was conducted uh, to, to, to take stock of the impact of Taliban restrictions on Afghan women's uh, mental health conditions and economic conditions in particular. And in that process, um, we were... The findings that we were able to gather, we've got, we will be publishing that um, next week, and you'll receive a link to that uh, from ODI uh, in a quick policy brief. Um, but for today, uh, some quick findings uh, for you that we'll share um, uh, will help to illuminate to illuminate uh, the the severe impact that these restrictions are having um, on the psychological um, and, and uh, uh, the psychological and mental implications on, on Afghan women. And the data that we've been able to identify uh, here is basically a survey of 2,112 women uh, across over 17 provinces, um, focus group discussions in 11 provinces with 159 Afghan women. Um, and the findings show that there's quite a, uh, there's a, quite a, a direct uh, link or a rise, I should say, in the um, in the rise in mental health uh, conditions uh, and deterioration for Afghan women since August of 2021, when the Taliban uh, um, assumed uh, authority over the country. Now, just briefly a little bit about Bishnau um, and Drops. Um, our organization, Drops, was founded in 2014 in Kabul. Uh, it currently has operations in uh, Afghanistan uh, and uh, Toronto, Canada. And uh, through our work with, with DROPS, uh, uh, we developed uh, Bishna, which is a digital survey tool that allows us to collect Afghan women's voices uh, in real time uh, through three key methodological tools, uh, that being face-to-face, -face, uh, being telesurveys, shorthand face-to-face -face surveys and focus group discussions. We do these surveys on a bi-monthly basis and the data gathered is presented on Bishnau's website. Um, and you all have access to it. The public has access to that data. And our intentions are to make sure that Afghan women's voices are present and available to be included and should be included in all policy discussions uh, related 
to um, Afghanistan, whether they be the current humanitarian crisis, the political future of the country, uh, the economic conditions, uh, there's certainly a tool that provides that information. So briefly, when we decided to work on the issue of uh, mental health conditions uh, in March, um, as you may as you may know, in Afghanistan, um, over the last uh, over the last two decades, I would say there were certainly data coming out on mental health issues in Afghanistan, but this was very few and far in between, and we didn't have um, uh, data particularly in the last two years or two and a half years to, to show to us whether there has been a rise um, um, in uh, depression and anxiety, and then particularly among women and girls in Afghanistan. And so with that in mind, uh, we decided to focus our survey tools uh, on, the, on this particular issue uh, in March. And in doing so, we coordinated uh, uh, with um, uh, the Special Rapporteur on uh, Human Rights, um, um, uh, as well as the Committee on, on Gender Discrimination um, um, uh, at the UN Human Rights Council. And we looked at, we developed four questions, and we tried to assess uh, what this impact was and what can be done by NGOs, international policymakers, and help mitigating uh, this uh, crisis. Some of the key messages, um, I would say, you know, three key messages that I could summarize for you uh, on, on what the data revealed to us was this data from Drops highlights that the Taliban's edicts have, in fact, instilled profound fear and psychological distress among Afghan women. This crisis is directly connected to decades of conflict and is emerging as a significant aspect of the ongoing crisis. Second, the international community must engage with Taliban based on principles that uphold women's rights comprehensively. So we're talking about the full spectrum of women's rights. Restrictions on education, employment, and freedom of movement are identified as leading causes of depression and anxiety among women, necessitating immediate action. Urgent action required from the Taliban include rescinding discriminatory edicts, restoring women's access to education and employment, and eliminating barriers like the compulsory dress code and the mahram requirement. Additionally, the establishment of a committee of experts in women's health and mental health, uh, which could provide creative solutions. And I just need one minute. Um, so one of the very first questions we asked was, which limitation on women and girls are you most concerned with? And as you can see, about 43% of our respondents told us that all of the above restrictions that you see, ban on education, lack of access to contraception, ban on women working for NGOs and INGOs, and ban on their mobility, was the restrictions that they were impacted the most. Hence, they were concerned most um, about these restrictions and wanted something to be done. 37.12% specifically selected the ban on education. This was noticed predominantly among single women between the ages of 18 to 25. The ban on women's mobility was selected as a key concern for single women, particularly the demographics we surveyed. And as for respondents between the ages of 18 and 25, the ban on women working for NGOs and INGOs was also highlighted as a key concern. 
when we asked them, do you know of any women or girls in your community who have suffered from poor mental health since the takeover by the de facto authorities? As you can see, 47.6% said, I know someone. Almost all of the respondents have said they knew of someone who had suffered from anxiety and depression, and this was seen across the majority of the provinces with very little variance. Majority of the provinces also reported knowing someone who, attempted, who had attempted suicide. Now on the screen, you see that this is 7.8% of the respondents who said this. However, I feel that the statistics hides the gravity of the issue, because when you look at this as a number, this is 164 women. And now if we take the average from 2,112 women and you take the average across the country, if this is what this percentage of women are telling you and you look at it across 34 provinces, you can see um, how serious of an issue um, this really is. When we asked them, what would help improve the mental health of women and girls in your community? Predominantly, what we heard was raise awareness on mental health issues within the family. Oh, here we go, thank you. Um, it was raising awareness among family members. That was the key concern. And they felt that that followed by um, positive uh, prospects for the future um, hand in hand could really help address the situation. And in terms of what needed to be done to help improve their economic situation, which is very much linked to the rise in anxiety and depression that we are noticing, and particularly what came out in our focus group discussions, which Dr. Revius is going to expand upon, um, it was uh, predominantly 37% saying the ability to pursue their career outside of the home uh, would go a long way. Uh, in this process. And very much linked to that, though the, the figure is quite low here, is uh, mobility, being able to leave their home without a mahram. Even those women who can work uh, in one sector that is exempted from Taliban edicts, which is the health uh, healthcare section, um, even in healthcare, when women go to clinics, they have to have a mahram that must occupy, must go with them and accompany them. And not all women uh, have that um, um, ability and to do so or have that um, at their disposal. Um, so it becomes quite difficult. And at this point, I'm just going to hand it over to Dr. Rivas uh, to talk about the uh, focus group discussions that we conducted. Okay. Yeah, so we also conducted, thank you, Mary. We also conducted focus groups across uh, 11 provinces. So I'm just going to give the, the broad, broad highlights of um, some of the feedback that came from those groups. So the first question that we asked in the focus groups were, how are the exemptions to Taliban restrictions being implemented? So what we found is the restrictions on education, work, and movements, you know, they've created a kind of a sense of being trapped uh, with no future prospects for many of the women. Right? So as Miriam has just said, you know, some concessions have been made on the bans to women working in the areas, particularly uh, health and a little bit education. But these are very sporadic in the way that they're being implemented. And they're often accompanied by kind of ever-changing criteria. So for example, in Farah province, uh, female healthcare workers were required, they were allowed to go to work, but they were required to cover their faces and to wear black gloves and scarves. So sometimes the company restrictions um, result in women not wanting to go to work, even under those conditions. 
In Bagland, uh, women said that they've been banned from going to work and clinics have been closed from up to two, from two days to up to two months. So this, there's also sporadic communication and inconsistency both across, both in terms of access um, and service provision, which is making it extremely difficult for Afghan women in the community and for healthcare workers as well. So restrictions on socialization have also made it difficult or impossible in many cases for women with mental health needs to be treated by a male doctor. Um, and simultaneously, uh, it's reduced or decreased the availability of female uh, healthcare staff. Overall, this increased vulnerability has created high levels of distress and mental issues among Afghan women, forcing them into a situation of constant and pervasive uncertainty in their everyday lives. The second question we asked in the focus groups was, how will the ban on education impact the immediate, medium and long-term futures of women and girls? So in the short term, uh, one of the things that came up quite, quite regularly was the issue of early marriages. So there are increased cases of early marriages. Right? In some cases, uh, we found the family has forced girls as young as 10 into marriage. In approximately half of the cases cited, however, young girls were opting to enter into early marriage because they saw no future for themselves. In Daikundi, there are also reports of families facing economic problems, forcing their uh, daughters into marriage leading therefore to psychological problems and even death. Families are making very hard choices. Online education was another issue that came up um, in several of the provinces. So women and girls are taking risks to try and continue their education, right? So using resources that are available to them, such as online programs. In Balk and Jajdan, online programs are being accessed by many girls in the urban areas. And distance learning instruction is allowing girls to continue aspects of their education despite high school and university closures. But the lack of employment opportunities, irregular access to internet connections, and the constant um, motivation and isolation of independent study that is needed for independent study have made this a short-term solution only. So women in Bamiyan and Herat stress that the restrictions on education must be addressed. Right? They cannot be sidelined due to the existence of online programs. This is not a, a solution. In the medium term, uh, short medium term, depression, anxiety, suicide, and attempts at self-harm are taking hold throughout homes in the country. So Miriam's just giving you some statistics from the survey. But we found that you know, when there's really a, a feeling of hopelessness and frustration at the increasing loss of rights to move, to work, and to be educated. In the longer term, we need to think about intergenerational trauma and illness. So children are, oh, the laptop, okay. Children are um, adversely impacted by the instability of the education system, but also by their experiences witnessing, witnessing violence in their homes, right? Violence inflicted on their parents and also domestic violence that takes place in the home. And the depression and mental health struggles of their parents, and particularly the women in the family who take on most of the caregiving roles. As we know, mental illness and trauma can be passed on from parents to children, right? Not just through epigenetics, but also through the environment. Right? As noted by uh, participants in Paktika province, the mental health crisis in Afghanistan today will not be resolved in the short term. But also the damage that's being done will take years to repair. And the longer that nothing is done, uh, the impact on future generations will be more and more significant and extensive. The third question we asked was, how can family understanding of mental health concerns be developed? So awareness around mental health is low, right? and social stigma around mental health illness acts as an obstacle to accessing social, familial, and psychological support. 
Afghan culture is centered around the collective, so meaning the family and the community. Um, and despite decades of war and violence and social strife, right, the absence of a state-led social welfare system means that uh, these structures, the family and the community, really provide life-sustaining support and protection. Mental health issues, however, are often misinterpreted as other illnesses, as behavioral problems, or as spiritual intervention or possession by families and communities. And due to the increasing vulnerability of women in the country, the possibility of being shunned by the family or the community could have fatal consequences. So in Harad and Balk, women experiencing mental health problems reported being beaten by male family members because of their condition. Therefore, women are attempting, of course, to hide their symptoms right, for fear of, of greater violence and hesitate to, to discuss their problems uh, with those around them. Okay. Because for many, it's, it's a risk that's not worth taking. So they try to manage their symptoms or illnesses on their own and they just suffer in silence. The final question, question four was, is it possible for community elders to negotiate access for girls' education with the de facto authorities? So in half of the areas where we conducted the focus groups, both men and women have joined together to protest Taliban restrictions. So there is lots of activity. Um, and advocacy is taking place in person, but also in social media forums. However, there's also been a swift repression of dissent in several of the provinces. So in, in Nangahar, for example, reports included severe beatings, imprisonment, missing persons and death threats of anyone involved in the protests. Um, in families where women and girls have protested the restrictions, uh, Taliban officials have targeted and beaten male family members. So as a result, families are physically disciplining their daughters um, and people are afraid to voice concern or opposition in public. However, impactful discussions have been held by elders in some communities with authorities to negotiate access to education for women and girls in some areas. In one case, classes for girls have been restarted, but uh, these efforts are taking place secretly and very slowly. Okay. Uh, and news of resuming education spreading has, in some areas, caused the classes to be cancelled and given rise to security concerns for those involved. So though um, there is resistance and people are you know, making efforts to continue education in different ways. It's, it's doing that um, gives rise to a whole other set of security concerns and violence. Thank you. So thank you, um, Maria Manalfea, for your insightful presentation and drawing attention to um, mental health concerns that are often overlooked in post-conflict settings. Um, I would now like to turn to our panelists to explore the implications of these findings. Um, we'll begin with Madeline Rees, who is a distinguished human rights advocate with dead, who has dedicated her efforts to organizations in the UK, including the Commission for Racial Equality and the Equalities Opportuni Op Equal Opportunities Commission, focusing on strategies to establish domestic rights. Her legal expertise is globally recognized as she brought cases to the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court in Luxembourg, earning her a prominent place in the Chamber's directory of British lawyers. She has also led the Women's Rights and Gender Unit for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and currently serves as Secretary General of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And just quickly um, to introduce Dorothy, Dorothy Estrada Tank properly. She is an Assistant Professor of Public International Law at the University of Murcia in Spain, where she also serves as co-director of the Legal Clinic. She is chair of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. She also is celebrated for her book, Human Security and Human Rights Under International Law, 
which received the Best Book Award from the Inter-American Bar Association in 2017. So we're really looking forward to um, your insights. And um, I will now begin my questions with the request that our panelists limit their answers to two minutes so that we can make sure that we can run through all of our questions. May I begin with you, Madeline? Um, with your extensive experience in the field of human rights and gender equality, can you provide some insights into the unique challenges that women face in accessing mental health support in post-conflict settings? Thank you, and thank you for inviting me two minutes to do something which is really a PhD thesis. Um, the most simple answer, I think, to your question is that what obstacles do they face? The biggest one is that it's highly unlikely that there will be provision there. I mean, if you look at the situation in, in Afghanistan now, and I think it's very pertinent that DROPS have done this research now, it shows the absence of human rights is what causes mental health distress in the first place. And unless those are recognized in any post-conflict, in the negotiations up to a post-conflict settlement, they're not going to be recognized in a peace agreement, therefore the provision is not going to be there. If you are lucky, as some women in the Balkans were, you will have a feminist movement there who will have recognized the need for support for so I was domestic violence before. They would transfer those skills into psychosocial support and during the conflict and after the conflict. And if you're lucky, you will have an international organization like Medica who could come and give support. Downside of that, these are NGOs. This is civil society. And that means it's always dependent on donor funding and that you're being able to access the one place you can go to. So it's not a sustainable solution. And what must happen is that if you think of who should be negotiating, in those peace processes, it's got to be those who have been engaged in the social reproduction during the conflict, who know best what the needs and requirements of the systems are, not exclusively leaving peace agreements to those who've been prosecuting the conflict. Because we see what happens when that, when that is the, with, with the results of what happens when you get that situation, is you will have this range of social economic rights that are left unfunded and le leaving basically essential services to a state which has prioritized land grab, security, and an economic system which benefits themselves. And that's been across the board in just about every single uh, peace negotiation there has been, which is why the Women, Peace and Security agenda on the insistence of having women participant, but properly, effectively, and with consequence, is absolutely vital. And it's no surprise that there are at least three resolutions which specifically say the need for the provision of uh, psychosocial support. So I think you know, those are the things that are important is to actually surface what's needed, ensure there's adequate funding, sustainable funding as it moves from humanitarian support into then proper effective government provided um, services for those who are most adversely affected. Thank you. Um, and yeah, of course, this is a it's, a it's a very big topic and to unpack how to put those building blocks into into place is, of course, a very extensive um, research as well as policy agenda. But just to move on before we try to come back to this is, um, Dorothy, maybe you can con comment a little bit on what are the potential long term consequences for not providing that psychosocial support not providing mental health interventions in post-conflict settings, both for individual women and also for the broader women, peace and security agenda. Thank you so much um, for the opportunity to share some thoughts on this. And building on what Madeline just said, I agree completely that the lack of a human rights-based approach and more specifically, a gendered human rights-based uh, approach 
to uh, these mental health challenges is 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 going to is bringing and will bring long term consequences. The first one being that to not understand mental health as one of the di dimensions of health, the human right to health, is then not including it in any of the policy priorities and uh, agendas precisely uh, working on human rights. And we see how this has been a real challenge in Afghanistan and other uh, conflict, post-conflict settings, where we see uh, the humanitarian priority, which is, of course, a necessity, and, and this has to be uh, focused on, but we want to rebuild with a human rights-based approach. And we see that concretely in the case of Afghanistan, as was uh, mentioned before, the root causes of several of the mental health issues are precisely the edicts and the human rights violating system, right? A system of governance and a legal system that is uh, built on discrimination against women and girls. So, of course, this uh, 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 this this scenario is not promising. Um, and not placing women's and girls' voices at the center and prioritizing their mental health as a human right uh, is, is affecting half of the population. And of course, uh, all of the, the, the people around them, the whole of society is affected by neglecting uh, the mental health of uh, women and girls and, and mental health uh, generally. So I think in terms terms of the, the, the broader region as well, if we look at peace and stability, the temptation could be to say, well, if a certain uh, government, including de facto authorities, are bringing a, a certain level of security or stability, then we can minimize uh, mental health, and in this case of women and girls. But the reality is that in the long term, this, uh, this, this means really... Um, uh, risks of radicalization, uh, broader uh, challenges in terms of not placing human rights uh, at the top. We heard from Madeline how this uh, may unfold. We've seen it in other places and 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 regions. So uh, we have to adopt a human security based approach. And you mentioned my work on that. And I think this is really understanding peace and security for the region in an integral way and not in that superficial or narrow uh, uh, concept of prioritizing the state without looking at the human beings that are there in that state. Uh, Dorothy, and I'm just um, thinking, you know, Mariam, you, your, your data found very clearly that the actual edicts of the Taliban are directly linked with the mental health impacts. I'm wondering that um, we're also dealing and talking about an environment where there's a lot of stigma around mental health. And I'm wondering if you have findings around um, how that stigma could be addressed in helping women through their mental health challenges and if, how much of that is posing a problem separate from, of course, the structural issues that are being produced by the Taliban themselves. Yes. Um, this, the stigma, as as Althea also alluded on this in, in her remarks, is very much was there and it continues to, to remain. Um, and that's it, particularly at the provincial level. Um, and so not understanding uh, what depression is, not understanding what anxiety is, um, has been one of the leading causes uh, of, of mistreatment of those who are suffering from mental health issues. Um, and in our policy brief, as we were analyzing this, uh, myself and Althea, we were able to draw 
some um, some suggestions that were coming straight from from uh, our female participants um, in the focus groups, and I thought a few suggestions that they had were 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 quite interesting, and it showed to us that those are things that perhaps could work in their communities. Um, the eleven provinces that we covered covers all the regional zones of, of Afghanistan. Um, and so one of the key, and I'll also pass this on to, to Althea to also contribute uh, uh, to this, but what, what we found was uh, two areas in particular. One was this constant suggestion of using um, local imams, local religious clerics um, to, to to help in providing more information on what mental health really is um, at the at the uh, at the local level, and we were told that because of the degree of respect that they have um, uh, at the provincial level, uh, that if they were to start discussing and talking about mental health issues, um, let's say uh, a suggestion was in their Friday sermons. Uh, that could go a long way in, in starting maybe the beginnings of a, of a, of a dialogue uh, within those communities. So that was suggested as, as one of the key. A second thing that we found that could be beneficial um, is to sort of uh, to attract the assistance or link the support of the Afghan diaspora um, who is based uh, uh, and who who is both based and also well connected um, uh, in terms of psychosocial support that exists um, um, and provide that or extend that to those in Afghanistan through INGOs that they're connected with, through local civil society organizations that are still operating in Afghanistan. And one of the recommendations that we had was the development of a committee that could bring together both Afghan diaspora um, healthcare professionals, healthcare professionals in the region um, who know uh, the the social you know fabric of, of Afghanistan because you know they share um, um, some at times language at times culture um, and then also like Madeline mentioned um, international financial support that is sustainable and long term. Thanks. Thanks. Can I just follow up then with um, Althea to just find out a bit more about how, what would it look like if we integrated gender sensitive mental health support into our understanding of um, broader peace and security frameworks? How is it possible? Yeah, I think um, actually there's two points I want to make that also kind of follow up on what the other panelists have said. You know, one of the things, mental health often falls by the wayside within yeah. uh, peace and security interventions. And there's there's reasons for that that I think we need to be honest about. So first, you know, uh, like um, Madeline and Dorothy said, you know, economic and um, political reforms or emergency assistance often take priority. Uh, but the second reason is that there is often an attitude that um, it's good enough for these people to survive. Or, mm -hmm. well, they were probably almost that violent anyway. Like, it's just part of their culture. So the violence that we see is not something that needs to be intervened, or it's not something that is a result of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this needs to shift. And what, what needs to happen is a, a cultural shift and maybe a mental shift in aid organizations in terms of the way that they develop um, interventions and think about these things. Because there is lots of guidance from WHO, from UNHCR, from Mental Health Network um, on mental health interventions, right? On how to do assessments on different programs. But it's often when it is implemented, not just not gender sensitive, it's not culturally sensitive, right? So it reproduces 
patriarchal and you know sometimes uh, very racist ideas that don't actually um, help the community, they hold them back. So it's not just a question, I think, of mainstreaming mental health into intervention programs. It's a question of changing the way we think about the value of people's lives in conflict and post-conflict situations and recognizing that um, you know, they have a right, as, as Dorothy was saying, to mental health. Okay, so that's, um, I mean, you're, you're saying the information is out there, the knowledge is there, it just needs to be also utilized and we need to um, work in a more culturally sensitive way also when we try to address um, maybe mental health service provision. And I want, I'm wondering if I could follow up with Madeleine and ask what do you think the role could be of international organizations and governments in trying to address the mental health needs and maybe you know um, provide the services um, psychosocial services more effectively. Can I cheat on that question a little bit? Because it's a great answer that Anthea gave just now on what should happen. Um, if you think of, and specifically with relation to Afghanistan, the UNAMA mandate actually specifies that it's supposed to be working on community resilience. Um, I know that's linked to, against terrorism, but it's there in the mandate. So how do you do that and what do you need to be doing? I mean, number one, there's got to be about looking at how the society are working together to provide exactly the sort of healthcare, education needs, et cetera, et cetera. We need to do that. How can we actually give effect to that? Again, through targeted interventions and a refusal to compromise when you are trying to negotiate something with a, with a de facto authorities who are using women as a negotiating tool. So I think we have to really look at what that is and that's gotta come from the, the people in the communities themselves. Um, and it would actually, I think, do something to surface some of the, the issues that you were talking about now in terms of um, psychosocial support that's needed, mental health, understanding it, how that fits in within a broader healthcare approach. That's one. But the other thing, and I think that this is possibly the bigger one for me, and that is I was at a, a meeting today with um, Iranian women and some women from Afghanistan. They were talking about the solidarity there needs to be between uh, the, the women from both countries because of the similarities of the persecution that, is, that they are undergoing. And that is both countries have regimes which are deliberately oppressing women. And we are offering the international communities not offering any hope. And if you do not have hope, then you do not have resilience and your mental health suffers. So if we're talking about resilience, we have to do it all. We have to help support the communities from a gender perspective and how we do a political economy analysis, how we bring these issues forward, how we actually make interventions to level that very unequal playing field. And then more important, as importantly, how do we ensure that the accountability for gender persecution is made real? And as we speak, there are still Afghan women and some men who are on hunger strike because of the refusal to accept that there is gender apartheid in Afghanistan. And that's a huge and important issue for many, many women, both in Afghanistan and in Iran. It's like you're refusing to call out what we are experiencing. And as a result, there is no absolute bar on ever um, recognizing the Taliban, which is something that would give people in Afghanistan who do not support the Taliban hope that they can actually talk with the Taliban try and get changes because whilst there is an apartheid regime, whilst there is persecution, there cannot be recognition. I think it's important to, to keep that alive for multiple reasons. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really powerful and speaks very well, not only to 
you know, the, the hopelessness and the despair that we're finding is coming from your um, data gathering. But also, Dorothy, you were just recently in Afghanistan and you did a fact finding of your own in which you spoke to women and girls and try to uh, really document in real time what that gender persecution is looking like. Would you like to comment a little bit on your findings and to say whether they tally with what you're hearing from the DROPS research? Yes, thank you. Um, definitely. I mean, uh, Maria Maltea, I think, know how useful the survey was because it really gave us the, the, the quantitative element before going there. Um, and then really being there, just seeing and experiencing firsthand in our interviews and in our meetings with women, uh, very young women, some of them, 19, 20 years old, who had wanted to go to university. And then right when they finished um, high school, the ban came and, and, and you can see, you can really almost touch the mental health consequences of this. And yes, they are definitely um, in this situation of feeling, like you said, that they are, uh, that they are trapped, that they are, uh, alive but not living, that they are in a prison at home, and this has effects uh, in terms of, of the risk or actual materialization of experiencing depression, anxiety, and yes, lack of, of hope for the future. So you see the gender persecution, you see the institutionalized uh, system of gender apartheid and, and, and how the UN Special Rapporteur and us on the side of working group uh, on discrimination against women and girls are, are we're trying to push forward are uh, uh, still doing so to to contribute to what Madeline was saying in terms of the resilience and keeping the hope alive. If it's not going to come or not primarily from what they are living in their own communities, uh, we have to we have to do it from the outside or in combination, obviously, with the with the efforts at the local level and always trying to place women's voices at the center. No, and I think this relates to what Altea was saying in terms of how do we reconfigure our understanding of mental health, right, from a gender, human rights-based approach, culturally sensitive, but, but really not only as a, as a, as a ticking box in, in terms of mainstreaming it in humanitarian programs, but really as a central uh, element of, of policy, which we know is not happening there, and not only through, through lack of access to healthcare and all the effects of the edicts, but really if we look at the edicts uh, broadly, if you think, for example, of the prohibition of going to gyms or to parks, this obviously has an effect on mental health as well. So we'd have an obligation, we have an obligation as international community as well to prevent the mental health problems from trying to address all of this also. And I think this uh, came out um, uh, in the in the Bishnau, um uh, surveys as well, the working with boys and men working on toxic masculinities, working with boys who are still going to school, working with teachers who do have, a, a, who do have a, an idea and a goal of gender equality. Um, and I think this is, this is uh, crucial to involve all of the community to keep on working now, but also to see what, where are we going to draw the red line as an international community to what is happening now there. I think drawing this red line, providing the evidence around what is actually happening in the ground is so important for building this case to, of gender persecution and gender apartheid, right? 
And Maria, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you plan to travel the findings of this research and how do you plan to use this for advocacy purposes? Where, what, what kind of policy changes would you like to see as a result, maybe in, in, in the international community as a result of this? Maybe both you and Alfea could comment on that. Well, as a, as a first step for us at Bishnau, um, we, we looked at this issue of, of mental health and, and approached it together with um, the working group on discrimination against women and girls led by Ms. Tank, also the special rapporteur on the situation of, uh, uh, of human rights in Afghanistan. And the reason why Bishnau did that was because um, they they had an upcoming trip, and we wanted to ensure that uh, that we could provide them with a view of what the environment looked like uh, in Afghanistan on this particular issue, which both of their offices were, were very much um, interested and keen on exploring. And then following from that, um, the the report on the condition of women and girls uh, that was jointly produced by both of these offices and uh, and uh, uh, presented at the 53rd session of the Human Rights Council just this June. So in that report, um, the findings that, that we uh, were able to collect were utilized. And so that means that the voices of of Afghan women in those provinces that we were able to gather through Bishnau were, um, were, di were directly incorporated into that very important document. So that was a second step for us. And at the 53rd session, we also held a side meeting where we presented these findings. And following from that, um, the next step for us was to look at the findings more comprehensively and develop a set of recommendations as part of a policy brief that we will then share with um, uh, key stakeholders, of course, here, but also uh, in particular within the UN system because of the UNAMA mandate and because of the importance of the discussions that are happening on Afghanistan at the UN Security Council um, and with European Union. Uh, the European Union leaders are, 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 um, are right now... Uh, assuming a lot of the roles when it comes to supporting civil society organizations on the ground in Afghanistan. So those funding streams are still there. So it's really important uh, to be able to target and speak to them so they know when it comes to what should be made a priority to support, uh, this would be uh, would be utilized. So I'll stop there. Um, Dr. Rivas? Well, you covered most of it. That was good. <laughs> um, so I think one area that still needs a lot of work is developing or doing research on mental health based on lived experiences and particularly looking at um, the coping strategies that women use as a foundation for developing programming um, and this is you know goes back to what we're talking about about doing something from the bottom up that actually is is based in the context itself uh, and so in the policy brief that we are producing after this should be available in a few days based on the, the study. Uh, that's one of the things that um, we'll be highlighting in terms of the results. There's also broader research that I'm doing in Colombia, Peru, Papua New Guinea, and Somalia that, that, that brings those things together. And it has similar findings? Or? That focuses on looking at coping strategies, as, at coping strategies as a basis for developing context-specific mental health that is gender-sensitive. Yeah. Great, thank you. So um, I think we can open the floor now to, and I can invite questions from the floor. Um, we have time. And um, if any of you have burning questions that you'd like to ask any of the panelists. Oh, okay. Um, 
Shahab first and then Pilar and then we'll go to the back. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you very much for this uh, survey. Indeed, very helpful. Uh, these findings, you know, I, I, I echo with the finding of this report. Uh, let me tell you all that, you know, my name is, by the way, Shahab, and I'm from Afghanistan, uh, and I'm working for ODI. Uh, just to let you know that four of my cousins, you know, they got married aged around 13, 14 last year. So this is a practical example that I can share. Uh, and it's also good, you know, uh, that, you know, people are coming here and proposing solutions. However, you know, uh, we have got a local Python Dari which says that, you know, So in this uh, basically, you know, uh, the point that I just recited, the saying that, you know, it's referring to the hunter who is trying to hunt a bird and they are using the arrow. Uh, and then uh, what happens is that when they, those birds are uh, wounded, they take the arrow, which is full of blood, to the hunter in complaining about the process. Uh, one of the suggestions that it was there that, you know, can we involve those mullahs and imams, you know, you know, these are the people with the Taliban mentality, with the people who are restricting uh, girls not to attend schools. I think we need some practical uh, policies in place to, to have a, a real impact, you know. Uh, we have tried uh, those processes in the past, those uh, suggestions in the past. I have worked in Afghanistan for 10 years, you know, I have been in the field. I've implemented the National Solidarity Program where I have worked with local councils. So uh, just a suggestion, you know, uh, let's not trust those. Would anybody from the amongst the panelists like to respond to Shahab's point or should I take another question? Okay, so maybe on to Pilar, you had your hands raised? No, who? Yeah, you in the back then? Sorry, then I'll ask. Hello, good evening. Um, my name is Nazifa uh, Hakpal, and I'm also from Afghanistan, uh, a former diplomat and as well um, a PhD candidate with SOAS. Um, as an Afghan, uh, but uh, this, this research was very much like uh, resonates with my own experiences as well as my friends and family and uh, that uh, I've been in contact and living in Afghanistan. But uh, what I was um, uh, kind of maybe a comment or a question to you or maybe to uh, Jyoti, um, the question that um, at the moment, as you, as, as uh, uh, other pa most panelists also mentioned, that uh, Afghans and women activists are uh, desperately advocating for gender apartheid. And although we know that gender discrimination uh, is happening, and it's it, this is itself is a war crime uh, against humanity, and it is has been mentioned under the uh, Rome Statute. So I wanted to see the difference between um, the gender. Apartheid, uh, gender persecution, which has already in the room statutes from um, uh, legal or public law perspective from our professor from Spain. Uh, and um, so if if we have this already, uh, what are, uh, or if we could 
um, bring this legal terminology of gender apartheid to what will be the difference in terms of the implication? Um, uh, can we, uh, is, is it adequate if we go with this and what will be the mechanism, uh, the first thing. And the second thing about your uh, very interesting survey, um, as you know, you're also Afghan, that uh, we have always um, hearing this um, argument from the Taliban and also from uh, many people from our community or sometimes from uh, neighboring countries that, you know, banning girls from education is something which is, you know, um, according to the culture of, Afghans. So I was really much interested, or I think that it, this would have a lot of um, kind of um, um, a positive impact, even if we go forward for documentation for gender persecution, to show to the world that, you know, this issue of banning girls from education is nothing to do with the culture. Because as a student of PhD, I've been um, reading a lot of literature of Islamic countries when they have, some Islamic countries not wanted to ratify CEDA uh, convention or some have done with uh, reservation. So there is a debate or a concept of, concept of cultural relativism. If that concept kind of uh, triggered in a discussion internationally, so it seems like, you know, there will be unlikely that this gender persecution will become a kind of convention or treaty or law, like similar or, or a kind of amendment maybe to the Rome statue. So I think this part would be something that would you consider to look at in your survey um, in the future to bring this debate of um, banning girls' education uh, and culture issue. And ask um, um, uh, Dorothy to answer your first question and yes. then, okay, yeah, sure. and, and then we can come back can, to more. Okay. That would be great. Thank Dorothy, can, can we have some more of your thoughts around this gender persecution and uh, gender apartheid and the distinction between the two as crimes against humanity? Sure. Thank you. Um, so both gender persecution and gender apartheid are grave and uh, systematic human rights violations. So this is the first thing uh, that I think is uh, relevant to, to remember or to keep in mind in the sense that apart from analyzing the international criminal law dimension, from the perspective of international human rights law, both gender persecution and gender apartheid are violations of, of uh, human rights, of women's and girls' human rights. Now, gender persecution, as you mentioned, is as of now included in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So it is also uh, an international crime, concretely a crime against humanity, consisting of the severe deprivation of fundamental rights um, by reason of the identity of, of a group in this case, women and girls that are actually more than a group, half of the of the population. And it's already recognized as a crime against humanity. Whereas gender apartheid is not yet, uh, and, and we don't know if it may be, this is part of the, of the discussion or, or, or of the push for it to be recognized as a crime against humanity. As of now, the Rome Statute includes apartheid, uh, focusing on racial apartheid. So the institutionalized system of oppression and discrimination of one race over another. If we would change that to one gender over another, we would have gender apartheid, which is what several scholars and activists are saying. So we have the building blocks to recognize gender apartheid if we take that definition. But I think that it's important to also keep in mind that the issue is not only having it recognized as a crime against uh, humanity, because that 
may take time and it would need uh, uh, that the assembly of state parties to the ICC approve it. And I think it's, 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 I think it's worthwhile to push for that, but it's also a violation of use cogens. You were speaking about public international law and we know that use cogens norms are the ones that are, one could say at the top of the pyramid of norms of international law, those that are inderogable, insuspendable under any circumstance and apartheid is one of them. So it's also a violation of public international law, apartheid, which so far in history has been recognized in terms of racial apartheid. But again, if we do the analogy, gender apartheid would also be a violation of Yuskogen's norms that one could claim, for example, before the International Court of Justice. Not only before the International Criminal Court, as it's not yet a crime against humanity, but there could be a case to be argued, for example, before the International Court of Justice through other mechanisms such as universal jurisdiction, meaning the presentation of a case before a national court. For instance, Spain, uh, Belgium, uh, other countries, some countries have these uh, procedural provisions which allow for universal jurisdiction, whereby a national court would judge a case concerning uh, uh, a violation that is of relevance to the whole of the international community. There's also mechanisms that can be argued before human rights bodies. So you mentioned the, you mentioned CEDAW, so, so violations could be argued before the CEDAW committee as well. So there would be a lot of ramifications and consequences from the explicit recognition of gender apartheid. Or for instance, for the General Assembly to request from the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, an advisory opinion on gender apartheid. A few months ago, the ICJ was requested to issue an advisory opinion on Palestine, on the situation of the occupied Palestinian territory. It would be the second one on that. And it has been on different issues in history. So that's another option. That's another avenue that could be explored. So we really want to, uh, as you mentioned, put the, the, the voices of, of Afghan women and also Iranian and others that are suffering similar uh, conditions at the center to to try to help devise these strategies and decide which is the best way forward. That's very helpful, thank you. Um, I'm wondering um, if you would like to follow up on the question about cultural relativism, that you know, the argument is sometimes made that, oh, you know, it's not in Afghan culture to value female education, or similarly, I think even what Shahab was saying, uh, concerns about, um, where do we have cultural openings to really allow for women's rights to be exercised? Do you want to comment on that from your data? Um, with regards to uh, using imams uh, at the provincial level, I would say in some provinces, I would agree with you that it would be incredibly difficult and, uh, to do so. Uh, in some other provinces uh, where the suggestion came out that this could be used because because, I mean, you consider the women at the village level, they're looking around and they're saying who in the community has the most influence. So they pinpoint those individuals. Now, tribal elders didn't come up. Imam said, but nobody said tribal elder, actually in any province, which, um, which I was not surprised. Uh, and so they're finding that perhaps if, if these individuals, now whether they feel that those individuals would want to do this or not want to do this is a different conversation. But they say, they think to themselves, if uh, the, 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 the local imam in our, in our village who is well-respected by everyone 
and they hold a different status now in Afghanistan than they did prior to August of 2021 also. Um, maybe this could bring a change, but I know that that in many places, the imams themselves would need awareness before they could. So that's, uh, it's, it's, it would be a complicated thing to do, but I found it really unique that it, it came up in a few suggestions. Um, and in terms of, I mean, when it comes to education, um, there is no doubt, and, and we have seen uh, OIC come out with uh, statements that have stated blatantly that this is against Sharia. It is against Islam to ban women from education. So Islamic countries um, that the Taliban had very good relations with but are now ignoring because they're victors and they don't really care uh, whether um, they have those long lasting relationships with those countries or not. So now those uh, Islamic countries are telling the Taliban that these restrictions that you're claiming to be against Islam are not. And the Taliban are look, turning around and telling them that you don't interfere in our internal affairs. Education is an internal affair. Women's right to go to you, to, to, to work and their mobility is an internal affair. This is what they tell the international community continuously, every time it's raised. Now, on the one hand, they say it's an internal affair. On the other hand, they say it goes against Islam. Now, Islam is not an internal affair in Afghanistan, right? And so the Taliban, what they're doing is they're, they're politicizing. This is what they're doing at the present moment. And so when we conduct a survey on any topic, and uh, we we we... If you look at our survey starting from May of 2022 till now, every single time, the, regardless of what the topic is, education is always highlighted as a need to improve the current condition for women and girls, no matter what that condition may be, whether we're looking at it from a mental health issue, whether we're looking at it from a security issue or from an economic issue or from a political issue. Um, and so... Absolutely. It, it has nothing to do with culture. And I think that if we continue to to try to if we do surveys to try to show that it has nothing to do with culture, I think that would be a disservice. It has nothing to do with culture. We already know that. And so what we need to do, we need to understand is how this edict is affecting women and how this accumulates to creating an environment amongst other factors that leads to gender apartheid. It's, a, it's part of the, the system that's being put into place. Uh, yeah, I wanted to just take one more question from the audience because this gentleman had his hand up. Could you just introduce yourself and then, thanks. Uh, thank you. Is it working? Yeah, my name is Khushal. I, uh, I have just come to the UK, not just two years ago. And I was working in, in the health system of Afghanistan, both within the uh, government and also with the NGOs. And I would uh, like to thank you for the great uh, topic, actually, that you researched. And actually, uh, in the situation where uh, the, the women's rights are suppressed in Afghanistan, the angle of the uh, mental health is somehow overlooked. And I think this might be one of the groundbreaking uh, survey that you conducted. Uh, as one of the panelists said, uh, each and every of your findings could be a, uh, a research question for a PhD and we can talk about each of them 
uh, as as we have time, but three of your findings uh, were very frustrating that the uh, mental uh, issue could be uh, trans, uh, transformative to the uh, children of the uh, families. It means it can create a vicious cycle. It, it can go to the next generations if the situation uh, was not changed. Uh, the, the next finding that was, it, it will not solve soon. And the last one, the issue of early marriage, uh, they are frustrating. But working in the health system of Afghanistan and uh, enforcing the issues raised by uh, my two uh, colleagues, uh, there were already some barriers against uh, women in accessing education and also uh, services. The stigma issue is, as, as I work in the health system of Afghanistan, uh, sometimes even uh, our colleagues who are working in the uh, mental health section had no uh, clients to, to consult with them when the situation was better. No one were letting their girls to come to the uh, health center for uh, receiving mental health services. Uh, well, uh, a weak health system now, we have a, a weak health system with a fatigue donor. Uh, I have just reviewed the uh, report by the OCHA, the uh, Humanitarian uh, Response Plan. We, for the next half of the year, if we uh, don't have enough budget, we will not be able to provide health services, mental health services to 1.6 million people already with, with the current budget, I mean. Uh, I think Afghanistan cases somehow different from other uh, post-conflict situations. Actually, we are uh, within the conflict, not we are uh, a post-conflict situation. And besides all the restrictions which is uh, employed by the de facto government, all of you might have gone to the psychologist that the first condition for receiving psychosocial psych counseling is to have privacy with, with your psychologist. How is it possible when your brother, when your uh, father or when your husband is accompanying you when you're sitting in front of a mental health doctor? Thanks for the great work. I, I hope you can, you, you can bring it uh, to as many uh, higher level decision-making platforms that you can. Thank you for that comment. I'm wondering, Althea, if you want to comment a little bit on the, the quality of services, so psychosocial support, how do you provide it in conditions like this where privacy is so difficult and health access anyway is so limited? So one of the recommendations that we make in the report as well is um, looking at community-based interventions. So I think you know, interventions with mental health need to be like a mental health chain of intervention needs to be created at the community and also at the facility level, because you do have um, situations like this, or you have areas that are really remote where people can't get to, or you have, you know, some countries that have worked in, there's five psychologists in the entire country, right? So the, the, the services just don't exist. Uh, so in those cases, which are quite common in conflict and post-conflict situations, you know, there there is a need to look at the coping strategies that people use and how those can be scaled up, right? And also um, community-based interventions and training, teleservices, telehealth. I mean, that's something that's already was um, 
implemented in Afghanistan uh, previously as well, right? That is mm -hmm. not not working right now. Telehealth is a yeah, an important innovation. Yeah, yeah. And that can be done regionally, or yeah. that's an area where the diaspora can really um, make an impact as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a question if I if I could just um, attend to from the chat, which is really um, Diane Poshar has asked, wouldn't the international community's responsibility be to examine ways to make space and welcome women and girls who are persecuted every day on top of the provision of mental health support? to teach them coping mechanisms. So rather than teaching them as a priority to just cope with the situation, provide them asylum here, I think that's the question, or open open our doors to welcome persecuted women. Do you have comments on that? Um, there, are, there are already efforts underway that started in August of 2021 when the Taliban took over militarily. And um, those efforts, um, though they have declined, they have not completely um, uh, been uh, removed. So there are still processes where there are some organizations that are helping um, uh, women who are being persecuted to, um, to, to try to find a safe exit. Whether that is the solution or not um, is something that... Uh, that is it's difficult to answer it's not a, it's not something that i would be able to 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 answer because what we're trying to focus on and look at is how to we have to focus on how to prevent we have to try to mitigate what is happening because as we found in the policy brief if left unaddressed it's going to become increasingly impossible to help fix this issue and let's not forget afghanistan was never post conflict 2001 was not post-conflict. August 2021 was not post-conflict. We have been in an ongoing conflict. I lived in Kabul for 14 years, and Kabul in the last five to six years was seeing attacks, um, two to three attacks on a weekly basis. The amount of civilians that we have lost, the amount of the girls' schools that used to be attacked, for example, girls' schools in the... Hospitals used to be attacked. Girls' schools, they used to poison the water in girls' schools at the provincial level. I mean, we already had these factors that were leading to very difficult conditions and, um, and uh, uh, PTSD and anxiety and depression. Now, having said that, the international community certainly has tools. It has its uh, channels of engagement with the Taliban, that it can continue to raise these issues um, and make it, uh, I would say, make it impossible for the Taliban to, 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 to have any hope for international recognition unless, some of, unless these restrictions are all removed, because these restrictions are all un-Islamic. And so unless something like that happens, we're not preventing anything from taking place. And when you're talking about coping strategies, the conditions are becoming more and more difficult to be able to, to do anything about it. So I know it seems like, okay, this might be a bit impractical, but I don't think it's impractical to ask the international community to use, finally, their leverages to be able to, to ensure that the Taliban meet some of their um, commitments their commitments and the commitments of the state. The state is a signatory to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, no matter who comes into power. Um, so they should be able to uphold those. But what I am seeing, Aisha, 
happening and what is very dangerous and what is very concerning to myself, to Dr. Rivas and to many others, especially the women's movement, is the normalization of the Taliban. So instead of trying to mitigate these issues, the international community, though I can't even say community because they're certainly not on the same page right now when it comes to Afghanistan, but we're starting to see the normalization of the Taliban. So it's it's really, it's, it's an uphill battle. If I could just yes, add sure. in response to Diana's question. Um, I'm not sure how that would work because you know there is a refugee and asylum system, but not everybody can leave. Not everybody wants to leave. And even people who do leave, being in you know the UK or states or Canada, or whatever, in a, in a global North country as a refugee, is a traumatic experience in and of itself, right? So that uh, absolutely is not um, going to help the situation. It's just another kind of like wave of of issues that then become really difficult to deal with because people experience, you know, we've just seen on the news this week, um, like tons of violence as refugees in this country as well. Um, and there's very little services for them. Right. It doesn't. It's not. It's not. A, it's a no. passing the trauma on to another level. Um, Madeline, I'm wondering if you would want to just sort of step in for a minute and reflect a little bit more on your earlier comments at, at the, in the when you spoke for the first time about the vibrancy of women's civil society in some of the post-conflict um, contexts in which you had experience. And how much how important that was in advocating for psychosocial support to women. And I'm just wondering how could that work in a context of Afghanistan where civil society is so constrained and the advocacy is really um, international and the, the women's rights activists are working from outside the country? That's a good question. I think that um, again, there was a lot of vibrancy in many of the countries in which I've worked, but it's always been. Um, underfunded and done very much as a result of women's activism rather than being part of the structures of the state, which of course is, a, is, a, is problematic. But it has, I think it's often an entry point as well for understanding better rights. So for example, in Bosnia, where there was psychosocial support to start off with, it was expanded, we supported that as well, in order to understand better the range of rights that were being violated. So how from understanding that people were traumatized, were not seeking justice through legal mechanisms in terms of accountability, but wanted to find out, you know, for example, how do I get my, how do I register for uh, humanitarian aid? How do I find my missing husband? How do I get my kids in, back into school? How do I feed them? You know, all these basic, basic questions of survival, which were not being answered. And so then you put them into a framework where it's directed to the relevant body that has the relevant authority to make decisions and to give you the support on that, then you're taking away a lot of that stress and anxiety and that loneliness that can happen. So that, that's a, a really important step, I think, in terms of, of women's vibrancy in pushing back through acts of solidarity and support. That's huge. But a comment, I think, on and in relation to follow up on what Dorothy said about persecution and you, Mariam, as well, um, I am very frustrated at the moment because I love law, but at the same time, it can take so much time to get things approved and actually into effect. Um, so gender persecution, we've got it. We've got it. And it doesn't, there are no, in terms of international um, humanitarian law, international criminal law, there is no defense that it's cultural. Sorry, it doesn't, it does not provide a defense. So if you if you deny the right to education, if you do the, pass the sort of edicts and continue the, the policies of the Taliban, 
That's gender persecution. And individually, you can be prosecuted before the ICC or under um, international jurisdiction, as Dorothy mentioned. Apartheid more complicated, because we haven't got that definition yet. But at the same time, it was said very clearly in the Human Rights Council session of June that many states thought it had made the threshold of apartheid. And South Africa led, Namibia agreed. Uh, France then agreed as well. Now, that, that's a political decision. But if it's, it's eventually, we will have a de definition of what gender apartheid is. But this definition gets us where this, sorry, this policy decision politically by states helps overcome what Mariam is concerned about, which is the normalization of the Taliban. So basically we slip into recognition just because it's easier. And women and you know, uh, LGBTQ community get thrown under the bus whilst we normalize relations with a, a de facto government, it will be. So we need to think politically as well as legally as to what apartheid means, because it's an important tool that would at least bring a firewall between that recognition and throwing women under the bus. So I think that's a really important part to, to do. And I think when we talk about women's vibrancy and solidarity, I think that's what we need to be doing outside. Those of us who are not in Afghanistan, those who are international supporting them, need to make clear. They know what it is. They see it, they call it, and we have to respond appropriately. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just in the last few minutes, are there any questions that we have from the audience? Oh, there are. Okay, you first. Yeah. Hi, my name is Amna Khan. I'm a research associate at the gender team at ODI. Thanks very much for the presentation today. I'm a bit curious to ask you, Mariam, about the socioeconomic profile of the female respondents, which income quintiles sort of were they relating to? Because from what I understood, a lot of Afghans are facing hardship and poverty anyway. And so understanding a bit whether they come from much more impoverished backgrounds versus more relatively affluent, that would be good to understand. Um, and also sort of thinking through the role of the neighbors, different neighbors of Afghanistan, and probably yeah, makes for a longer chat, but I would want to pick on some of the findings that I've had access to. So Pakistan did a drive initiative looking at all the Afghans that needed to be registered last year. So it was a massive survey of about over a million Afghans to give them the cards financed by UNHCR, etc. Most young people said, we want to go back to Afghanistan. So that for me was very powerful as an insight. So there is a future that many people from outside of Afghanistan living in places like Pakistan would want better. So thinking about that as well, the role of neighbors. I'm just going to take the next question so that you can answer them together because I, Mariam's going to have to leave like very quickly. I, you had your hand up and then, yeah. Could you just introduce yourself? Um, hi, my name is Amanda. Um, I'm actually an old student of Althea's. Um, my question kind of goes along with your question about the respondents' profiles. Uh, you spoke a lot about um, stigma around mental health, um, cultural relativism, and I just wanted to know um, if you could talk a bit more about the limitations of the study. Um, and how you collected the data and certain challenges you encountered. Thanks. Over to you, Mariam, for the closing words, yeah. 
Um, in terms of uh, the breakdown, thank you for that for that question. Um, so, two thousand one hundred twelve women were surveyed. They were surveyed uh, in a little over seventeen provinces. Seventeen provinces in March, uh, Bishnav had access to to survey. Um, some of the women that we would uh, contact through telesurveys and shorthand face-to-face surveys, but particularly telesurveys, because there's a lot of movement, um, there's displacement, uh, they would, um, we would find them in another province, which is not covered in, in, in the 17 province where we have presence and do our work. And so that's why um, we say a little over 17 provinces. And with, the, with this uh, number of respondents, the breakdowns um, were uh, about, about 1,300 were between the ages of 18 and 25. A lot of our respondents are usually within this age bracket because Afghanistan has a youth bulge a uh, large percentage of his population is below the age of, uh, of 24. Um, and then uh, a little over 1,100 uh, were si single, 974 were married, 33 widowed. Um, a little over 1,300 said they did not have children. And uh, about 1,500 um, said no income. And 255 said low income, uh, and 167 said middle income. Now, low income is less than 5,000. Middle income is between 5,000 AFs and 10,000 AFs. Would you mind putting that For example, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, right now with the USD, so one AF is 80, 83, something like that. 5,050 pounds, there you go. Um, and so that was the, the, the breakdown. And in terms of limitations, um, so the limitations that we have in our study. So when we are, for one, when we're doing, when we're contacting through telesurveys, um, we, and also shorthand face-to-face, -face, we take the snowballing methodology. So it's not random sampling. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Second of all, we can tell that the, we can identify that the women we speak to from which province we are speaking to them, but we cannot identify the exact locality. Like we cannot say, are they at the district level? Are they at the village level? So we're, we're unable to identify that. And in terms of our, in terms of our shorthand face-to-face -face surveys, um, initially when we created that tool, it was supposed to take a random sampling approach. Uh, but once again, that too takes a snowballing. And so that limits you because when you're conducting surveys, your, 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 your enumerators are speaking to those individuals they know. Um, so those are some of the limitations to, to keep in mind. When it comes to our focus groups, um, our focus groups uh, were, were with women whom, whom we had already um, uh, established contact with way back in 2020. Bishnau started before the fall of, 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 of the Republic. And uh, they, these women represented five sectors. So they were prominent women in their provinces, either from um, provincial councils, civil servants, healthcare workers, religious scholars, civil society activists, and entrepreneurs. So those are the sectors. So now they, none, they, most of them do not work in any of those sectors, but they continue to be a part of our, our women's peace circles with whom we do these 
of uh, these focus group discussions uh, with. I want to say uh, just quickly, because one of the really unique aspects of the Bishna project um, is the referral system. Do you want to mention that quickly? So when we, when I say telesurveys, so in terms of telesurveys, we have a database um, of a certain number of, of contacts of women all across Afghanistan. And this database, like I mentioned, was created way back in 2020. And we've just continued to add to it. The database started with us reaching out to our NGO partners in the different provinces and asking them if they could refer women to us in their community from these five sectors that they think would be interested in participating in our surveys. So they would speak to those women, get their approval to, to send their contact details to us, and then we would, contact the, uh, we would contact them. And the referral system was as such that it helped us build a relationship uh, with the women because cold calling, which is what telesurvey is in many ways, was a new experience in Afghanistan. But when you use the referral system where you said, hi, you know, your, your contact details were shared to us by so-and-so, then they were more inclined to listen to you. And so that's what made the possibility of telesurveying an, an actual tool for us um, at, at ROPS. Okay, I'm afraid that, thank you so much, but I'm afraid our time is up. So um, as we draw to a close, um, I'd like to thank our panelists, Madeline, Dorothy, Althea, Mariam, for sharing your views, sharing your important research with us and your personal experiences. Um, and I'd like to thank the participants also for your invaluable contributions to this important conversation today. In a world where the challenges and complexities of peace and security persist, it is paramount that we recognize the often overlooked intersection of gender and mental health. And I hope today's conversation has helped to reinforce the importance of addressing mental health, mental well-being of women in these challenging contexts. And the data that um, our colleagues have gathered has served as testimony to the resilience of Afghan women and underscores the urgency of our collective efforts to support them in this challenging circumstances. Thank you everyone for joining us. There are drinks in the reception next door. Thank you, thank you Madeline and thank you Dorothy. Thank you so much. <laughs>